Will you take out your copy of God's Word? Turn with me to 2 Samuel, chapter 1. Uh, don't, don't be distracted by the fact that we're starting a new book. Uh, this is a study of the life of David, and originally, before it was translated into Greek, First and Second Samuel made up one book. And so there's an artificial division here. It does mark a turning point in the life of David, which is going to be obvious in a moment. Um, But pretend that's not there. We're we're really just kind of in 1 Samuel 32 uh, is the way it's practically here. Now, by way of reminder, there have been two simultaneous battles that 1 Samuel closed with. The first involves David. David, we saw it back in chapter 30, he and his men were away from camp, and while they were gone, um, their camp was attacked by a band of Amalekite raiders who, who, while they were away, made off with their wives and their children and their property. And at the end of chapter 30, David and his men ransack the Amalekites. They go and chase them down with God's help and got every penny and every person back. So that's one battle that's been going on. The other was in chapter 31. We saw Saul at at battle as well. But Saul's battle didn't go as well as David's. The Philistine army attacked the Israelites, and Saul and the people of Israel were outmanned, outmaneuvered, and outlived. And we found out back in chapter 31 that Saul and others, including his son Jonathan, David's best friend, were defeated. And the narrator in chapter 31 let us know that the badly injured Saul then fell on his sword so that the Philistines would not capture and torture the king. We know that's, we know that's how that story ended. David doesn't know that yet. He doesn't know Saul's uh, fate in battle. And so I want you to hear what happens next. This is Second Samuel chapter 1, starting in verse 1. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days at Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when, da- when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. And the young man told him, uh, who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Geboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered him, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? And I answered him, I'm an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand behind, beside me and kill me. For anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I've brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. 
And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. David said to him, how is it you are not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. We're going to stop there for this evening's reading, and we'll pick up next time I preach, Lord willing, uh, with the latter part of Second Samuel, but verse 16 is a clear stopping point. Let's seek the Lord's blessing as we study the word together. God in heaven, we pray that you would show us more of yourself, even yourself uh, as you are somewhat hidden in this passage. This is not a passage that causes us to rejoice. It's a discouraging passage in so many ways, and yet we see you mightily working in it and through it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that I think is so unique about this church and that I love so much about this church family is how many things people do behind the scenes with no recognition. There are dozens of people in this church who have tasks like sweeping floors and cleaning bathrooms and filling up empty toilet paper dispensers. And most of the time that happens unnoticed but it always gets done. I I am so grateful for people who delight in doing their jobs behind the scenes, going unnoticed. One of the things we've seen again and again in the life of David is how often in David's life God is working behind the scenes, even though nobody seems to notice it. It, 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 And the, the narrator typically doesn't say, well, God did this. It just unfolds. And there are many chapters where God's name is not even mentioned, and yet God is at work rescuing and protecting and providing for his people without any editorial comment. Well, it's true in our, in our text today. You know, this is a really strange story. It, it paints a picture uh, that some think is an inconsistency in the biblical record about whether Saul killed himself as as chapter 31 says, or as this Amalekite uh, killed him, as chapter 1 of 2 Samuel says. Now, it's not an inconsistency, but it can paint the picture that it is. It it also can give the impression that the, the punishment that David meted out on this Amalekite was a bit harsh. It wasn't. It also seems to just be a story about sin and grief and death, and it seems as if it's irrelevant to our lives today. It's not. But it's not exactly the feel-good story of the year either. In fact, I'm willing to bet my salary that we will never in our lifetime see a children's nursery painted with this scene. But as we pause and look at the story, there is so much going on that teaches us about the unseen God and how he builds his kingdom. All of it's going on just beneath the surface, and so we're going to look at four things this evening. We're going to see first the God who governs, 
Second, the God who judges. Uh, third, the God who exposes. And fourth, the God who provides. So, governs, judges, exposes, provides. Look at the God who governs. I know that you probably want to deal with this Amalekite issue, whether or not he was lying and why David killed him, and we'll get there. But before we can make sense of that, we need to see something that that is foundational to all of this, and that is there is a God who governs. There's a God who governs his kingdom. In an earthly sense, the kingdom was Saul's. He, He governed, but if we zoom the telescope out, we remember that the kingdom belongs to Yahweh, and he is the the great mover behind the scenes. And Yahweh requires that his kingdom be governed in accord with kingdom principles. You know, that's what the scriptures are, the principles of the kingdom. They're the guidelines of how the kingdom functions. You know, Saul violated kingdom principles over and over again because he repeatedly usurped God's authority. He, he didn't remember, he, he, he forgot again and again that he was on borrowed or delegated authority, and so he would see himself as the highest power, and he again and again did what was right in his own eyes. And do you remember why King Saul lost his kingship in the first place? If we were to flip back to 1 Samuel chapter 15, God had told Saul to annihilate the Amalekites, and God told him, you're going to do this because of how they treated Israel when Israel was coming up out of Egypt, and so God said to destroy them and all their stuff, but Saul disobeyed, and as a result, God took the kingdom from Saul. Now, contrast that with David. David had multiple chances to kill Saul, to lift his hand against God's anointed. And in many ways, he would have been justified in doing so because Saul was hunting him. But he wouldn't do it. Why not? Because he knew that he didn't need to take matters into his own hand in order to expedite God's plan, in order to expedite the kingdom coming to him. You see, God's kingdom principles require that God's law be followed. And so David knew he couldn't raise his hand against God's anointed in order to expedite God's will. He knew that no matter how he tried to pull strings, it was ultimately God who governed. And it was God who had made the promise that David would one day receive the kingdom. And so David could be patient and he would receive the kingdom in due time. And so David was firmly convinced that he needed to live by kingdom principles because that is how God governs his kingdom. To go against those things, to take matters into his own hands, as Saul had done repeatedly and violated God's law, was a rejection of God's governance of the world. That's an, there's an important application in here for us, one that we may not see, David understood how God was governing his kingdom. It was through a king. Now, God has not called us today to build a geopolitical kingdom. We do not have kings in his kingdom today. He's building the church. And rather than having kings in the church, what we have today as God's form of governance is the word. 
sacraments, prayer. And so you and I ought to have a similar regard for God's governance as David had even when Saul was king. Uh, we, we do not need to take matters into our own hands. He will build his church and he will use the foolish things of the world to accomplish that end. Kingdom growth requires abiding by kingdom principles. Second, I want you to see the God who judges. The story begins with David finding out what we already know, and that is Saul's dead. And whatever the circumstances of Saul's death were, it's not a coincidence that the disgraceful news of his death was delivered to David by, of all people, an Amalekite. That's one of the very people Saul should have eradicated for the preservation and purity of God's people, and he became the messenger of the news of Saul's death. This is what you call ironic justice. God's long-promised judgment has now come to Saul, and Saul died not with honor but with dishonor, hopeless, faithless, and watching his kingdom be destroyed by his bitter enemies, the Philistines, another tribe he was supposed to have destroyed but did not. And now, just as God promised Saul back in 1 Samuel 15 that the kingdom would be ripped out of his hands, that's exactly what we see happening. This Amalekite tears the crown from his head, uh, pulls the armistice off of him, and it's the final nail in the coffin of Saul's judgment. It is not coincidental that an Amalekite is involved here. John Calvin says, this was a just punishment which God sent Saul in accordance with his sin. After Saul's death, God sent a man of this very nation, speaking of the Amalekites, who snatched the crown and royal ornaments from his body so that he was left in even greater shame. Now, concerning Saul's death, we need to see that God kept his promise of judgment. You know, Saul undoubtedly thought, maybe my actions aren't going to catch up with me because there were probably a couple of decades in between 1 Samuel 15 and 1 Samuel 30. It was a long period of time, and, and Saul undoubtedly began to think, you know, maybe God's word is going to fall to the ground. Maybe God is not going to take the kingdom from me. And he thought that because the judgment was slow in coming, that it was delayed, he would escape scot-free. He didn't. And the earthly judgment he received was nothing compared with the eternal judgment that awaited him. Now, I want to be clear on this, though. Had Saul repented, his sins would have been forgiven. Think about Paul's words in Romans chapter 2. Uh, starting at verse 2, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. That's speaking of that litany of sins listed in Romans 1. And then he says in verse 3, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those will pra uh, who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you'll escape the judgment of God? Listen to this, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God will judge sin, 
He absolutely will judge sin, and every person will fall into one of two categories, those who have repented and trusted Christ or those who will die in their sins. And let me just plead with you, if you, if you have not repented, if you have not come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus, don't think that just because maybe the consequences of your sin have not caught up with you, don't think that means that God will not judge sin. Paul is saying here the reason for God's patience and kindness is to lead you to repentance. We see the God who judges, and by the way, I think there's a great lesson for us in how David engages with the judgment of God. Never lifting a hand against Saul, he had every reason to have done so. He had every reason to rejoice in Saul's death, because not only did it mean the kingdom would come to him, but this man who has caused him such grief is now dead. But it's clear from David's response to Saul's death that he's guarded his own heart against selfishness and bitterness, resigning Saul's fate to God's judgment. You know, I think a lot of us would have thrown a feast when Saul died, but David throws a fast. It's clear David understands the kingdom principle of what God says. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Do you know the opposite of entrusting those who have wronged us to the justice and vengeance of God? The opposite of that is bitterness where we long for their downfall, where we want to, to see it happen, and when it happens, we rejoice. When we harbor bitterness, we are reserving the right to judge for ourselves. And so bitterness is a foreign concept to the principles of the kingdom. Well, as we keep working through the text, it's clear there's some kingdom principles that are also foreign concepts to the foreigner, to the Amalekite. He comes to David with news of Saul's death, but he also comes with an ulterior motive. And what he didn't realize is that there is a God who exposes. That's the third thing I want you to see, the God who exposes. And it's time for us to deal with that question, that apparent conflict between 1 Samuel 31 and 2 Samuel 1. Remember, 31 says Saul fell on his own sword. Chapter 1, the Amalekite says that he ran him through with the sword. Do we have a contradiction here? There are many critical scholars who say, yes, look, look, it's, it's as easy as this. The Bible's wrong. Chapter 31 and chapter 1 contradict each other. There was a time when Mark Twain, the prolific writer, was actually very deep in debt. And he went on a, a tour, a speaking tour in England to try to generate income. And in his absence, of course, there wasn't paparazzi, there wasn't the internet, and so people didn't know where he was. And so the rumor mill spread that Twain had died. And when he heard about it, he published that great line, news of my death has been greatly exaggerated. Well, the news of Saul's death has not been exaggerated, but somebody's not telling the truth here. 
uh, either the narrator is not telling the truth or the Amalekite is not telling the truth. And the great commentator, Dale Ralph Davis, if you've never read uh, Davis before, you need to. He says, if you ever have a choice between trusting the narrator and trusting an Amalekite, always believe the narrator. Have you ever met an Amalekite you could trust? Well, here's what I think happened. I think Saul did kill himself, and the Amalekite stumbled upon him after he had died. And the Amalekite picks up Saul's crown and royal armaments. He tears his clothes and he runs them to David, giving David the impression he's mourning Saul's death. But he's really an opportunist. He doesn't want to look like an opportunist, so he writes himself into the story thinking, you know, if David thinks that it was by my hand that Saul was slain, he's going to owe me a favor. He, he may give me a place in the kingdom. Now, as Alistair Begg says, that was a grave miscalculation on his part. Every sin lies open and exposed before the eyes of God. And through David, God administered another cup of ironic justice here, this time to the Amalekite. Look at verse 13. David said to the young man who told him, where do you come from? And he answered, I'm the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. And David said to him, how is it you are not afraid to put your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? It, he's not saying, how are you so courageous? He's saying, how are you so foolish that you would raise your hand against God's anointed? And then David called one of the young men and said to him, go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. David asked, where are you from? Not out of curiosity about the man, he was thinking, if this man's a mere Amalekite, he may not know that that was the Lord's anointed. He may not know that this is the man that God had chosen and anointed to govern the kingdom. But when the man says, I'm a sojourner, David knows that this man has been around Israel enough. He knows what's going on, and he should have known better. So think about this. The Amalekite assume David would gladly take any opportunity to steal the kingdom from Saul's grip. David assumed that the Amalekite should have known better because any man who fears the Lord would not raise a finger against the Lord's anointed. And so David has the man executed. But it's interesting, he was punished for what he said he did, even though he didn't actually do it. He's not actually guilty, in my esteem. He's not actually guilty of murder, but rather of lying. Uh, but the God who exposes, the omniscient God caught up with him, exposed his sin, and gave him the judgment he deserved, even if it wasn't what David thought he did. This reminds us, beloved, we have a God who sees and exposes sin. That's why David, in his repentance psalm, Psalm 51, verse 6, says that God delights in truth and the in the inward parts. Psalm 90, God sets our secret sins in the light of his presence. It's not the last time in Scripture we see secret sin brought into light. Ananias and Sapphira sought to gain standing in the kingdom of God by lying about their donation to the church. And it fooled everybody, but they were struck dead. Why? 
because nothing escapes the eye of the Lord. That's what Jesus said in Luke 12, verses 2 and 3. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Beloved, don't believe for one second that just because our sins may elude the eye of man, that they will escape the all-seeing gaze of the Holy One of Israel. He's the God who exposes, and in the process of, of exposing this man's sin, and, the man, and judging the man, the Lord protected David's court from having a devious liar. You know, don't we see this all the time? Today, we see this. You, you read the news about scandals of church leaders. And on the one hand, it's grievous, it's disappointing, it's embarrassing for the life of the church. And, and some would say, see, it, it proves that, that Jesus isn't really real. It proves that Jesus isn't really true. But do you see what's actually happening? It's Jesus exposing sin and preserving the church. It's, it's proof that Jesus is doing exactly what he said he would do, because he is the God who exposes. Well, finally, I want you to see the God who provides. Saul's dead. The people need a new king. And if they have any sense about them now, after the last couple decades of dealing with Saul's narcissism, they need to realize they need a better king. They need to realize that they made an utterly foolish choice in choosing a selfish, tyrannical, spiritual fool as their king. They need a servant leader. Hopefully they realize that. They probably didn't. But they need a servant leader, and that's exactly what God provided for them. David, in this scene, shows his fitness to lead God's people. Instead of playing armchair quarterback and saying, well, Saul should have done this and should have done that, and that's why the Philistines won, David is moved to great compassion. Look at verse 12. He grieved for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. It's a mark of a true spiritual leader that he wasn't concerned about his kingdom so much as he was concerned about the people of the kingdom. And he was grieved. That's the sort of leader God's people always need. Not someone who is driven by ego, but driven by sacrificial love. And so God provided a far better king. But in about eight chapters, we're going to see David had his failures as well. David reminds us we need a better king. And Davis, David points us forward to the true king that God provided for his people, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a God who governs and judges and exposes our sin. Nothing about us is hidden from his sight, and all sin will be judged. But praise be to God, the Savior that God's justice requires, God's grace has provided. What God's law required, God's Son fulfilled. You and I, our greatest need is not better politicians, not better leaders, but the true Savior, and God has provided exceeding abundantly beyond anything that we could ask or think in Jesus Christ. And thus, God could be called both just 
and the justifier of his people. And this one whom God provided would not only govern perfectly by kingdom principles, but he would be the king that you and me need. Let's go before our God in prayer. Lord, we thank you that you do govern all things. You're building a kingdom, and it's not reliant upon us. It's not reliant upon our ingenuity or strategies. It's, uh, you work through us as we apply kingdom principles. Lord, we see men like Saul, who were utterly foolish, refuse to submit to kingdom principles, and we see the judgment that came upon them. We see men like the Amalekite who sought to conceal his sin, and yet it was revealed before the eyes of an all-seeing God. Lord, each of those things lead us not to shake our heads at them, but to see our own sin and to come before the Lord Jesus, who alone can forgive, who alone is the provision we need for the forgiveness of sins. We come before Christ now with gratitude for the gospel. In Jesus' name.